So uh, the process of the, the rebuilding, the renewing of, of this nation continues here. And there's another dimension of it that's added in this chapter uh, of Nehemiah. This process of rebuilding the people is, is, is much more difficult than the process of just rebuilding the physical structures of the, the devastated land that these exiles had returned to. I mean, it must have been bad enough when they trekked all the way back from Babylon and that they found that Jerusalem uh, was, was destroyed, that the walls were broken down, that the gates had been burned by fire, that the temple no longer existed. It was just a pile of rubble. And they set to work, of course, trying to, to rebuild all of that. And it took, it took a lot to do that. It took a lot of foresight, a lot of planning, big leadership from Nehemiah, a lot of hard work and buying into the project from the people as a whole. And, and they accomplished that. It was all achieved in a remarkably short period of time. But this phase now is, is a much more challenging one. What they're now attempting to do is, is even more difficult than that. They're, they're trying to build in values into the hearts and the lives of the people. They're trying to establish a culture of belief and worship of God. And that is a much more difficult thing. You know what they say after any war? It's often more difficult to win the peace than it is to win the war. And that is effect, effectively what they are trying to do now in these, these chapters that we've been studying in Nehemiah. Back in 1948, uh, the modern-day state of Israel came into being. And one of the challenging things that they had to do, and they achieved, was they had to resurrect a dead language. Hebrew was a dead language. Nobody spoke Hebrew. And yet they embarked on this massive educational program. All the exiles who came from Russia, from Eastern Europe, from America, you know, they wanted to be Israeli citizens. They had to learn Hebrew. And, and they achieved that. And that, of course, is the language that's now, now spoken there. Um, and it's that kind of thing that, that really they're meeting with here to try and establish, to, to put spiritual bricks into place and into position. And it is a much harder thing. To, it's, it's a lot easier, if I can put it this way, to slap a piece of cement on a brick than it is to put a bit of spiritual cement on somebody's heart and onto their mind. And yet that is what they're actually doing here. Now, we should take this all as a lesson uh, for, for ourselves uh, too. And we, we may maybe ask ourselves the question, well, what is it that is required to, to revitalize my life, my spiritual life? What is it that's needed um, to, to, to revitalize the life of, of a church? Because, I mean, it is the reality that churches can go into decline. They can plateau and they can tail off and some churches end up closing the doors. I mean, this happened for this place, didn't it, before we bought into it again. As far as the physical structure, this place lay derelict. 
And it wasn't just the building that lay derelict. It was the whole spiritual witness and life in this community that had died off for whatever reason. And these things can happen. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it that is required to produce renewal, reformation, revitalization, whatever word you want to use in our churches as well. Well, there are, there are two things that are put in place, additional things in this chapter that I'm going to bring to your attention hopefully this morning. And the first one is the whole idea of confession of sin. Now, you, you did notice that, didn't you, that uh, that word came up a couple of times. Verse 2, it says that they stood and they confessed their sin and iniquity of their fathers. And it says actually in the next verse that they did that for a quarter of the day. They stood. And this prayer that forms the bulk of our chapter is their prayer um, of, of confession. So it's a, it's a solemn assembly that has been called again on this 24th day of the month. All the people have been called together. They're standing again. Things are slightly different if you notice how they're dressed, they don't have on their Sunday best. They're all dressed in, in sackcloth. And there's earth on their heads. All these things, an outward kind of show of the kind of state of mourning and uh, confession that they are about to enter into. And I want you to notice the order of the events of the day because that's important. Because for the first quarter of the day, the book is brought out again. The book of God. And it's read from for a quarter of a day. I cut down the reading today. You know, sometimes we can't concentrate. They listened to it for a quarter of a day as it was read out. And then following on from the reading, there is this time of confession. That order is important. It's not just change for change's sake. It's not just changing things around. It's the change that comes from what the book tells us, what it instructs us. And what they find here is that their lives hadn't really been tallying up with what they have heard read out in their presence. And it's on the basis of that that they're affected. It moves them. It's something that hits them hard, and it's a powerful thing. And that's why they stand the way they do, and they enter into this period of, of confession. So that, that is the, the spiritual brick that's being laid here in their hearts and minds. Confession. You know, I wonder at times if that plays a significant part in, in my life, that in response to the Word of God, I, I respond appropriately, or whether I just allow it to wash over me, and irrespective of what I hear or what I read, I just blithely go on. But Scripture tells us about the importance of this, First John 1. If we do confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins, because it's the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, that cleanses us 
from all sins. Confession is an admission that we've missed the mark at times, that we've fallen short of what we should be as far as God's standard goes. And we don't defend ourselves. We don't try to justify it or explain it away. We hold up our hands and we accept responsibility and we perhaps even say words like the prodigal son said when he realized how badly he had messed things up. Father, I've sinned. And uh, I've sinned not just before you, but before heaven. Now, another similar word, of course, for confession that we have in our, in our Bible is the word repentance. And the Lord looks for that from, from us individually, and He looks for that from churches at times. I mean, if you were to read about the seven churches that Christ writes to in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, five out of the seven churches, he says to them, you need to repent. You, you really need to change here. There are things that need to be addressed, and they need to be altered. He looked, he looked for that, for instance, from the, the church that was in Laodicea. And what he'd hoped that their prayer of confession would have would be words something like this, we realize that we have been materialistic. We realize that we have been self-sufficient, that we think that we have need of nothing. We are now aware that, in fact, despite everything that goes on here, that Christ has been left outside the door. And we need to change. These words never came. These words never came from Laodicea. They never confessed. They never repented. And the lampstand of their witness was shut down. It went out, closed down by God. But these people here are different. These people are trying to make a change. So let, let me just try and summarize their prayer of confession, which falls basically into two parts if you run down the passage as I, as I do this. The first, the first thing that is included in this prayer uh, is, is the goodness of God, the faithfulness and the goodness of God to them and to their ancestors, to their forefathers, and they acknowledge that. So let, let me just read down uh, some of the, the verses that, that talk about that. Verse 6, you're the Lord alone who made heaven and earth, who preserves them, and who the host of heaven worships. Verse 7. You're the God who chose Abraham. Verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You divided the sea. You led them out. You gave them bread from heaven. You gave them water from the rock. Verse 32. You're the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Verse number 17. You're a God who's ready to forgive, who's gracious and merciful, who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
So they look back over all of their history, and they see the goodness of God, their Savior, which shines through everything. He saved them. He guided them. He provided for them. He sustained them throughout all generations. And always his love was steadfast. You know, I think this kind of thing is what increasingly you know, we should be involved in as well. At times, just to pause and to reflect and go back in our own minds and give thanks for the goodness and the faithfulness of God in our lives. To think of all that God has done for us, how he has saved us through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, from our empty way of life, the Prince of Glory was sent and gave himself upon the cross so that we might, be, we might be saved and guided and provided for and everything that's required for life and for godliness has been provided for in him. And he's done all of that. How good is the God that we adore. How much he has done for us. 10,000 reasons we have to sing about that and about his faithfulness. It says, actually, there's a, there's a great little verse there in verse numbers at 27, where it says, he gave them saviors. You know, that's a reference to the book of the judges. The judges were also called saviors. As far as we're concerned, he gave us the savior who has rescued us in a way that they could never have done. Now, I think this is the place to start to be revived in heart. It is to look to Christ again. Take our eyes away from ourselves and to look at Him, the Savior, for me. And to have my heart entranced and captivated and my affections moved and stirred as I think of God's goodness shown to me in Christ. And everything that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me and continues to do, this is the place, as these people say, this is the place to start as far as any kind of revival is, is concerned. But there is something else, actually, that is kind of interwoven with this awareness of God's goodness to them. And, and, and the word of chosen uh, to summarize that is the word arrogance. The word actually that in the ESV uh, is repeated twice, and you'll see it in verse number 16 and also at verse 29. It says, But, despite God's goodness, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. That's the word, presumptuously. They presumed that they knew better. They presumed that what they felt was right was the way that they should go. And there was an arrogance about all of that. There was a pride that was part of all of that. And, and, and they feel it necessary to acknowledge that in their prayer of confession. How that despite God's goodness, they presumed that their way 
was what mattered. And look at some of the other words in that uh, verse, actually, around about verse 16 and 17. Some of the other words and phrases that are used. Um, They were stiff-necked. They did not obey. They refused. They were not mindful of God's wonders. And so this is their honest admission. The description not just of their forefathers, but of themselves. And they realize that their current, well, the word that's used, the phrase that's used down in verse 37 is their current great distress. We are in great distress. It's the consequences of these attitudes and activities and sins, the arrogance of their heart. And again, you know, I'm sure there, there are lessons for all of us in this about, about pride, about spiritual pride, pride too, too proud to renounce our own way and bow our hearts before the will of God and the mastery of Christ. You know, that's what happened way back in what we now know as the Reformation, the revitalization, which took place in the 1500s. Martin Luther comes on the scene, bursts on the scene, and there's a kind of rediscovering of the, the heart of the gospel. You know that, uh, you know, if you're going to be just, if you're going to be right before God, you need to have faith in Christ alone. You know, and, and he, rega- he regathered that, and he presents that, and the established church at the time was totally resistant, totally resistant to that. He exposed corruption at the same time as he highlights the glory of Christ and the gospel. And some of the church, of course, was reformed and revitalized, but many were were completely resistant in their pride and arrogance um, against all of that. So, So anyway, what happened here in Nehemiah? What happens uh, next, and what did they do? Well, you know, obviously this was an, an emotional occasion. They were, they were clearly deeply affected. They, they're, they're moved to tears, the people as a whole. And it's a genuine thing. It's a real thing. This is not kind of mass hysteria. It's not some sort of emotionalism that's been stirred up by the leaders I mean, this is something that genuinely cuts them to the heart and, 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 and affects them. But you know, that's not all that is required. I mean, it is important to be affected, not just to allow things to wash over our heads, but that is not all that is required. And repentance, you see, is not just some sort of guilt trip thing either. You know, to make people feel bad about themselves. One of the clearest helpful explanations about that you'll find if you want to have some homework is to read Second Corinthians chapter 7 where there is a contrast between guilt trip stuff. He calls it worldly sorrow. You know, where people are just left hanging. You know, I feel terrible about this. And it just leads to death. But he says, true biblical repentance, it leads you to Christ, where you've got no regrets. There is an answer to it. It takes you further forward. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Genuine response that leads us forward. 
And the, and the kind of way that we need to be led forward uh, is in the terms of a verse I'd like you to turn to in Romans chapter 6. Because, yes, emotion is important, but it's more than just emotion. And look at uh, this, this um, chapter uh, here, Romans six seventeen. It talks about them obeying from the heart the standard of teaching. Now, I want you to notice three things in, in, in that phrase. You have will, the obeyed. You have emotion from the heart, and you have the mind, the standard of teaching. And all of these things are required for a a true and a genuine, wholehearted response to the Word of God. That's what we have here. We have that here. And the reason that we have here is because look at what they do at the end of the passage. They just don't continue confessing their sins for a quarter of the day. At the end of that, what is recorded at the end of the chapter is this. They made a firm covenant in writing. There was a sealed document, and the names of the princes and the Levites and the priests were affixed to this document. They made a commitment. You see, it's not just an emotional response. It is also a volitional response. It's not just confession. It is commitment and action as well. That is the response that God is looking for us to His Word. And, and, and look at what they do. Chapter 10 goes on to give some of the details of, of the document that was written up. And they, they line up, and you've got the names of all the people here. And they step forward, and they sign their names against what they have decided and what they have committed to doing in response to the reading of the Word of God, which has impacted them in such a significant way. They follow it all the way through. And so, if you were to look down just briefly into chapter 10, you will see some of the things that they put down in writing. Okay? So, so they commit, verse uh, 29, to walk in God's law, to obey His commands. They make a commitment to the Bible. To the Bible, as they had it. Verse number 30, they make a commitment not to intermarry with the pagan unbelievers of the land. Verse 31, they sign on the line to observe the Sabbath, that is to give God His priority, His place of worship in their lives. And verse 32, they sign up to this, the financial support of the work of God and the people of God. So this morning, You know, as we try to bring all of this together, may we be resolved to sign on the line, you know, to sign up to specifics, to real change, to genuine repentance that involves a response, maybe in one of these areas in particular, to go home at the end of a service like this and to to sit down with a, a pen and a piece of paper and say, well, 
You know, they talked about the importance of obeying the Bible. They talked about the importance of purity in their lives, of, of the worship of God, of the importance of giving to God. Maybe this is something that I need to respond to specifically. Things that over the years I've just allowed to slip a little bit, that's just become a little bit fuzzy and cloudy in my thinking. Maybe we need to be revived. That's exactly what they have here. So let's, let's just conclude by, by stating these points again. Revitalization is about confession and commitment. It's about emotion, but it is also about volition. This is the next phase. These are the next bricks built into the hearts and the minds of the people. And there are lessons for us in our day. I just want to quote to you the words of uh, the poet uh, William Cowper as I, as I end here. Uh, we're going to hear his, his poem, his prayer sung at the end. And um, they're, they're words that almost describe a similar process that happened in his life. This is what he says. I've just taken a couple of the verses. He looks at his life and he asks this question. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus in his word? The dearest idol I have known Whatever that idol be, help me to tear it down, to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. I should say this is not just a one-off thing. It's a process, a continual process that in our hearts should be built in. Now shall we pray? Lord, we feel our own... Uh, inadequacies. Uh, we worry that it is easy for us to be unaffected by your word, that we come to it, that we're familiar with it, that we're familiar with the practice of just being here, singing the songs, hearing the prayers, listening to a message, going home, having our Sunday lunch, and the day and the week trots on in front of us, and we're unchanged and unaffected. And we see the example of the people here and how deeply this had an impression upon them. Not just so that they, they felt it, but they did something about it. And so, Lord, we pray that in response to your word, help us today uh, to tear what idol, whatever idol is upon our hearts and to worship only you. Lord, we commit your people to you. Thank you that they're yours that you love them, that they, they, they are your unique, special treasure for whom Christ died. And, uh, and Christ wants to be with him, to see his glory in heaven one day. Lord, help us to walk with our Savior, uh, to please him and give him the honor that's due his name for all that he's done for us as we give our praise now uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.